everybody, and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Robert Draper has seen it all. I love this blurb from his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. It says, Draper has seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's never seen it this ugly. Welcome to the podcast today, Robert. <laughs> Thanks for having me back, Charlie. So the weapons of mass delusion, you know, there have been so many books written about, you know, the the various uh, history of uh, the Republican Party losing its mind. I wrote one of them. But, but you really have this focus in on this pivot point. It is the story since January 6th, 2021. This was not the book you thought it was going to be, was it? When you signed on to write this book back in December 2020, you, what did you think it was going to be? You, you know, I mean, the assumption was Trump is defeated. Trump's going to go away. You, you thought you were going to write about what? Yeah, that's, I mean, good question, Charlie. And I, I wasn't sure. I just was anxious to see um, after Trump had lost in 2020, um, where the Republican Party would turn to next to, to find new leadership. I didn't expect that Trump would go away altogether. But I did expect that there would be a concerted effort on the part of the GOP to find a new party leader um, and that there would be, you know, some manner of um, intramural skirmishing uh, uh, within the party uh, while that took place. But, you know, you're exactly right. I got the contract in mid-December 2020. Trump hadn't yet conceded, but, you know, most of us figured that he would. Uh, we certainly didn't bank on what occurred um, a, a few weeks later. But it happened that I reported for duty, basically, to begin my interviews um, for this book on the morning of January the 6th, uh, 2021, inside the Capitol. And, and uh, the circumstances that unfolded unfolded before my eyes, uh, both inside and then outside the Capitol. And um, needless to say, I came away from that experience with a very different notion of what this book would be. But I also figured that the stakes were so calamitous for the GOP that surely what had taken place at the mm -hmm. Capitol would force them into a posture of introspection and penitence and a determination uh, not to fan those kind of flames again. That, as we know, is not what occurred. And so I was there to witness over an 18-month period um, the movement of the party towards a doubling down in, in embracing the MAGA centricity of the party. And that's an extraordinary story, even for those of us that thought we'd already lived through this extraordinary uh, story. And see, this book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, covers the 18 months since January 6th, what you called the pivot point between this is not normal to this is dangerous and it's not going away. And I think that if, if I could just I, the, the heart of this book is the recognition of how deeply ingrained this is in the party, that the threat has gone way beyond Trump himself, right? I mean, and there's a lot of in this book about, and I know a lot of the coverage and your other discussions have dealt with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is uh, certainly a weapon of mass delusion. But really, it's the real danger is the fact that millions of Americans believe this, that it's penetrated, it's changed the nature of our politics. And so talk to me about that a little bit and, 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 how, and how rapidly this has happened. Sure. I mean, I, yeah, that's something that I did not fully appreciate what you've just described until I, you know, was several months into reporting this book and traveling throughout the United States, 
going to uh, Trump rallies, going as well to far right events and interviewing people within the party apparatus, as well as grassroots activists in swing states like Georgia and Arizona. And what was abundantly clear to me in a way that I wouldn't have appreciated you know, from behind my desk in Washington was um, just how uh, the stolen election had become central to MAGA theology, because it really played into a larger belief, Charlie, that, um, that Trump's electorate, that Trump's base uh, already felt like America was being stolen away from them. And so the election became um, not only a metaphor for that, but also confirmation of it, and then would lead in turn to other you know, adjacent notions of other things that had been um, of liberties that had been thwarted, mask mandates and vaccines forced onto them, the uh, the opening of the border to augur in the great replacement theory, and the persecution of peaceful patriots who gathered at the Capitol on January the sixth. I mean, all of these were lies, but they all play into each other. They all reinforce each other, and they all reinforce most of all. The notion, not only that they have been wronged, the um, Trump's base, which I define as tens of millions of, of um, Republicans, but also that the, the, the people who have done this to them are incorrigibly evil. And this means not just the Democrats, who they call radical socialists or communists or whatever, but also the swamp, the deep state, the media, big tech, all of these forces have colluded and and basically are on the business end of what the MAGA constituency now sees as a sort of holy war. So speaking of the MAGA constituencies, Elise Jordan uh, sat down with a focus group of Trump voters from Pennsylvania yesterday. And I think a lot of people who heard this or saw this on, on NBC were, were just blown away by it. I'm, I'm guessing that none of this will come as a surprise to you, but let me just play one minute of her discussion of Doug Mastriano, who is the Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, uh, his role, he was one of the protesters um, on January 6th. And she asks this group of Trump voters whether they think that that's a problem. Here's what they had to say. Doug Mastriano was at the insurrection and he was photographed breaching one of the restricted areas. Is that okay? Which area? Because I saw a video where Capitol officers yes. were taking away barriers and unlocking doors, doors for people. So, yeah. oh, that's I mean, I... They opened the gates So it shouldn't be disqualifying for an elected official no. No. if no, they participated in January 6th? He didn't, he didn't strike anybody? He didn't hurt anybody? Yeah, and the only one that died was a protester there, not a Capitol police An unarmed officer. female veteran. Which that's the only one that died. That's well, the only one who died. A police officer did die. No. It was a stroke. That's not. That's not, not on site. Caused by that, that's because right. he shouldn't have been a police officer. It was one woman. So, what do you him. make, though, overall of January sixth? I mean, it was watching that footage. It was pretty disturbing. I mean, there were people throwing excrement at the walls, and it was our, you know, it's the Capitol. That it looked a lot true. like Antifa's actions. Yeah, it looked a lot of, except on a much smaller scale. It looked the same as the Black Lives Matter riots. So, Robert, there is the complete, <laughs> like, alternative view of January 6th, you were there. Could you possibly have imagined on January 6th, seeing what you saw, hearing what you heard, and 18 months later hearing people say, oh, it, was, no, it wasn't that bad. It was, you know, basically, you know, Black Lives Matter and Tifa, cops let them in. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm getting this sixth sense of deja vu listening to that <laughs> because I've, you know, in my reporting, I encountered people who would characterize everything just as as uh, Elise Jordan um, heard from that focus group. I did, you know, I, I could have imagined what I saw, but not in the U.S., you know, maybe in other conflict zones I've been in, like Somalia or Libya or the Democratic Republic of Congo or Sudan, um, but not in the U.S. And you're correct, Charlie, I certainly would not have guessed that this kind of en masse delusion would take place in which, and you'll notice in listening to um, that focus group, how their uh, how their rationales kind of migrate in a sort of zigzagging illogic where um, it's an ordinary tourist event and people were allowed in it was no big deal but there was violence but that violence of course had to be the work of Antifa though no Antifa members have been arrested and charged there are also you know the the belief that maybe the FBI set up um, peaceful protesters and agitated them maybe uh, this was crisis acting on the part of Speaker Nancy Pelosi and others. And then ultimately that the people who are in the D.C. jail under indictment for January 6th related offenses are basically um, political prisoners. You know, uh, this is kind of like the 2020 election fraud thing where where you proceed from a basic belief that the election has been stolen and you um, and you throw a bowl of spaghetti against the wall and and whatever sticks works. And, you know, that's uh, back when I started reporting, uh, it was, you know, all of these Dominion kinds of things. And then Cyber Ninjas was going to uncover this in their Arizona audit. And when that failed to occur, the latest proof positive of election theft was Dinesh and D'Souza's pseudo documentary yeah 2000 mules which also proved nothing but simply because of its very existence served as a kind of proof that something nefarious must have occurred and and this is a, really a subset of of the larger delusion i mean the whole big lie about the election and about january 6th i mean it also applies to covid vaccines mm-hmm. pedophilia antifa all of this right i mean there's just so much out there right now is is there a connective tissue between all of that? Yeah, the, the the connective tissue, I guess, is twofold. I mean, one that America, as these Trump supporters know it, has been stolen away from them, and and that relatedly, there is an encompassing fraud that has been perpetrated on these Americans, and that fraud encompasses not just election fraud, but judicial fraud, medical fraud media fraud, fraud of all types. And what this then requires is endless auditing, endless investigation. But in the meantime, while we're getting to the bottom of all of these instances of encompassing fraud, the truth is up for grabs. And the truth is whatever anybody says that it is. And and this means now we're in a state where um, uh, tellingly, if perversely, Former President Trump has created his own social media platform called Truth Social, where when he tweets out something, it is called A Truth. And we have members of the right wing media ecosystem um, with dubious names like uh, One America Network and Real America's Voice. So there has been an appropriation of the word and the notion of truth. And this has been enabled in many ways by saying that everything we in fact know to be true is false. Yes. Orwell weeps.
So what I, I don't think we're doing justice to is uh, the granular nature of your reporting as as you as you describe the scene on January sixth. I mean, there's a lot of uh, startling new details and a lot of yeah. characters in this. I want to just let people know that this is just a hell of a story. Now, what I think is interesting is the way that you handle Trump and the relationship of Trump to these various characters into this larger phenomenon, because you don't treat Trump like he's the puppet master of people like Marjorie Taylor mm-hmm. Greene. Paul Gosar, or even Kevin McCarthy. Um, they, they have like developed that with their own momentum of awfulness. Sure, that's right. <laughs> well, so, so two different parts to that, Charlie. The first part is that Trump, you know, for all his authoritarian impulses, none, nonetheless gives a lie to his own claim that I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and my people wouldn't care. Actually, there is a truth to that. Maybe he could shoot someone and they wouldn't care. But if he said, you know what, I actually want to appoint a couple of uh, pro Roe v. Wade Supreme Court justices, that would be the end of his presidency. Mm -hmm. If he were to say, let's do comprehensive immigration reform where there is a path to citizenship, that would be the end. If if he ever uh, made good on the discussion he'd had with Senator Joe Manchin following one of the school shootings that we really need to do something about these terrible guns. That also would have been the end of his presidency. So he's he recognizes the frailty of his power over his his constituents, and um, he is for them only so long as he sides with those particular issues. Okay, so that's one thing. To Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and other avatars of the the MAGA movement, it's certainly true that they have taken more than a page from Trump, but it's also the case that in both the cases of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, that um, they're more extreme than Trump, more shrill in what what they say and how they say it. And and particularly in Greene's case, you know, someone who came out of nowhere as this QAnon-obsessed, affluent uh, CrossFit gym co-owner uh, <laughs> uh, uh, in, in Georgia to, in spite of all of that, win a seat in Congress uh, and then m- one month into her tenure, gets stripped of her committee assignments, where one might have figured that, well, that's the end of Marjorie Taylor Greene. She instead posted this monster first quarter financial report and since then has outraised all but four of the 210 uh, Republican members of the House. It's an unheard of performance for a freshman, but that is only like one indicator of the level of influence that she has over the Republican Party. And yes, it derives you know, from her um, close association with Donald Trump, but most of all, it derives from her understanding of that base, her ability to play to that base, and the recognition that as long as she is seen as the in-house house warrior for the MAGA base, uh, House leadership like Kevin McCarthy needs to placate her. I mean, it, it really also illustrates how the, the center of gravity, of power, of influence in the Republican Party has shifted. And because, I mean, she is a creature of that base as well, right? I mean, yeah, that, that right. right now she doesn't need to go to Kevin McCarthy to get the, the source of her power. She knows that it's that it is the ground up. It is the grassroots fundraising. It is, the, you know, the people who will rally around her. And that's the political reality. So she's a major character in your book. So is Paul Gosar. And, and he, you tell some, you know, for those of us that, you know, were exhausted by Paul Gosar, but you point out why we, you know, you cannot ignore him. You write, Paul Gosar responded to the horrific massacre of 19 school children and two adults in Uvalde, Texas on May 24th 
after first consulting the musings on a far-right 4chan message board. The shooter, he concluded that day on Twitter, was a transsexual leftist illegal alien. And everything in that claim was false. But as you point out, our leaders are highly unlikely anymore to be penalized for fact-free statements. In fact, they're far more likely to be rewarded for it. Yeah, I mean, and, and indeed, Gosar was not penalized. He was, you know, in, in general, extreme statements that are also fact-free, like that particular one by Gosar's. There is a, a, an incentive structure for making them in the form of online donations, in the form of social media attention, and in the form of being invited to appear at right-wing events. But it's also the case that McCarthy recognizes that if he were to punish Gosar, all he'd manage to do is make a martyr out of him. So instead, when the Democrats stripped Gosar of his committee assignments and censured him, uh, McCarthy did a couple of things. First, he he warned Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, that there would be payback when um, the Republicans take back the majority, if they do, in the form of Democrats being stripped of their committee assignments. In other words, I know that I believe what you did was wrong, so I'm going to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, then, and then the other thing is that McCarthy turned to Gosar and promised not only that when McCarthy would become speaker, that Gosar would get committee assignments back, but that he would, and this is an explicit thing that, that McCarthy told Gosar and told Marjorie Green separately about her situation, you will get better assignments than before. So, so they have actually been rewarded for their outrageous conduct. So you spoke with Marjorie Taylor Green. You talked to her about what she would expect to, uh, to get from Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, yeah. She said, well, she said a few things. I mean, one of them is plum committee assignments. Um, she wants to be on oversight and on judiciary. Oh, and James Comer, and James, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and James Comer, who's likely to be the chair of House Oversight, has already said that he would welcome Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, on his committee. So, there's that. Also, um, she strongly expects, uh, you know, and will push for the Republican majority to initiate impeachment inquiries against not only Biden, but several of his cabinet members. Um, But she expected, you know, I think, you know, more broadly, Charlie, for McCarthy to be mindful of her policy objectives, which are quite out of the mainstream and, you know, include but are not limited to, you know, sealing off the border and prohibiting all immigration, legal or illegal, yeah, for, for four years. Uh, you Christian know, government, prayer in schools. Yeah, yeah, right. right. All of that stuff, and it's and uh, and and because the argument that she made to me was, look, you know, I've told the Republicans in conference, I've told them this that when you guys controlled everything, 2017, 2018, you didn't get a damn thing done. So her her phraseology was, you shit the bed, and mm-hmm. she said, that, you know, it's uh, and that's why I ran for Congress. You know, the the Democrats were bad enough, but you guys just got rolled. And I'm not going to let that happen now that I'm in Congress and I'm in a position of influence. So, so she's not only going to get these, you know, plum assignments and things of that nature, um, but that she fully intends to see um, her policy objectives enacted. And and if it requires an internal civil war within the Republican Party, she has said to me, I am here for that. I think she's made that clear. You know, as you point out, we really haven't paid that much attention to the, the the kinds of policy things that she's been saying on a pretty, you know, on a pretty regular basis. 
and you know, she, you know, she wants to ban abortion. She wants to eliminate all gun control, uh, kill all climate change legislation, put doctors in prison if they provide mm-hmm. medical service to transgender youth. I am old enough to remember when Republicans would want to sideline or isolate someone like that. Right. Instead, however, they are courting her. So J.D. Vance went out of his way to get her endorsement. Carrie Lake went out of her way to get her endorsement. And so rather than sort of treat her as an outlier, the, you know, the mainstream of the party is saying, yeah, we, we really need you and we're not going to push back against any of these ideas. Meanwhile, we see some of the more rising stars, I guess you could say, like Carrie Lake. I mean, using the same kind of language that Marjorie Taylor Greene has to suggest that the Democrats coddle pedophiles and and want to place groomers in every schoolroom. I mean, the the notions that Greene was promulgating from the outset, you know, and calling Democrats communists, for example. I mean, now you you know, the, the NRCC has used this in its blast emails for fundraising purposes. You know. Uh, alluding to uh, Pelosi being, you know, uh, being basically communist friendly. And uh, the notion of impeachment for Biden was something that she'd been pushing literally from the first day that Biden um, uh, took office uh, and was greeted with eye rolls back then. Now you hear it all the time. So so without in any way um, moderating her stances, they have become more central to the Republican Party's rhetoric and policy objectives than seemed imaginable when she first came out of nowhere. You made a point on Twitter that I thought was very, very interesting. Uh, Nancy Mace, who is a you know conservative congresswoman who clearly despises Marjorie Taylor Greene and has been in some pretty nasty fights with her, but but she uses her talking points now, doesn't she? That's right. She does. Yeah. And, and those, I mean, Clearly, Mace is interested in getting at her base in the first district of South Carolina. She needs them to be able to prevail in a, in, you know, a, a pretty interesting. I'm not sure it's a totally tight race, but it's you know, it's it's um it's competitive, yeah. and and to get her base out, she's 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 playing the pedophile card, you know, and and uh, and talking about um, Democrats being soft on pedophilia and and about protecting children. Very QAnon adjacent stuff. And quite ironic, given that Nancy Mace absolutely loathes Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene and the feeling is mutual. And in fact, Greene told me, for which I reported in my book, that she had in turn badmouthed Mace to Donald Trump, who in turn then yeah. endorsed yeah. Mace's primary opponent. So, you know, they, these two really can't stand each other. But basically, here's Nancy Mace taking a page out of Marjorie Taylor Greene's extremist playbook. So speaking of Kerry Lake, we just mentioned Kerry Lake in, in passing here. Um, you did an event with my colleague Tim Miller uh, last week, and yeah. and you both agreed that if Kerry Lake wins in November, that she would be the odds-on favorite to become Trump's vice president, unless Trump Absolutely. doesn't run, in which case, you really think that Lake would be the odds-on favorite to be the 2024 GOP nominee? Has it really gone that far, that fast? No we're talking about President Kerry Lake now? Sure, sure. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're talking about someone who is um, very, very gifted in front of the camera, who possesses Donald Trump's and Marjorie Taylor Greene's absolute shamelessness, and uh, who can articulate the most extreme messages and policy objectives, but really cow members of the media, uh, political opponents, etc. No, I mean, I think that she is the most polished politician you know, political neophyte, certainly, but I've, um, that I've seen in a very, very long time. And, and I frankly, you know, that I have always felt a bit skeptical about 
DeSantis is this rising star. I mean, you and I heard this about a guy you know pretty well, Scott Walker. Yes, and right. and uh, yeah, that you know Walker just had it in the bag. I mean, he he was everything that conservatives wanted to see, but he was a crappy campaigner. And you know, I I'm not convinced of DeSantis. I mean, seeing him with a Charlie Crist debate, you know, the other night. I mean. This guy is not polished, and I think that Carrie Lake would mop up the floor with him. So, yeah, I think that she is really a rising star. And it's interesting right now, like Marjorie Taylor Greene likes Lake a, a great deal, endorsed her, will campaign with her, et cetera. But it'll be interesting to see if she does win and her star continues to rise. First of all, if Trump himself may be a bit concerned about that, of being eclipsed by Carrie Lake. And secondly, whether Green will also see Lake as the VP competition that she's very likely to be and act accordingly. I mean, I will say this about Green that, that thus far she, she she only tends to like, you know, go after people who she feels like have wronged her. She's never seemed to show any kind of jealousy towards a Matt Gates or or anyone else who she thinks is in, in their lane. It's only when people have, in her view, wronged her. But that could change, you know, if Carrie Lake steals her thunder. Well, this is what's so interesting, because it's always a dangerous moment for a political party when they have too much success and it happens too quickly for some of these people, yeah. because then, of course, those knives do come out. And I just think it's fascinating, the you know, possibility, okay, so Carrie Lake versus Marjorie Taylor Greene, are they going to start to get jealous? Uh, what are they going to think down in Mar? Lago here. Who's going to be dishing out the oppo research? Are DeSantis's people going to be pushing out, you know, oppo research on Kerry Lake? And and this is that's why I think next year is going to be awfully interesting in Republican politics, uh, which leads me to Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I honestly don't know why he wants the job other than just sort of the muscle memory of you want power for the sake of power, because that is going to be that's going to be a fucking circus. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, not for nothing did Patrick McHenry, who McCarthy really wanted to run for majority whip, say, uh-uh, I'm not going to be a vote counter, you know, with this, this, this unheardable group of cats. I'd rather be chairman of financial services. McCarthy, on the other hand, has coveted the speaker's gavel for a very, very long time, probably since he arrived in, in D.C. And, you know, someone close to him, told me some time ago that, look, you know, McCarthy probably wouldn't, you know, he's not looking to be Speaker of the House for eight years, you know, like like a Nancy Pelosi or something. He might do it for a couple of years and then go on and make millions, you know, as a techie in Silicon Valley. But, you know, they never underestimate McCarthy's willingness to eat bowl full after bowl full of crap. And in fact, yeah. it's literally, you know, the, a parable in um, the TV series, The Wire, that Patrick McHenry alerted McCarthy to uh, uh, basically about a, a mayor of Baltimore who literally asked to eat one bowl of shit after the next, and that's what the job is. And, you know, McCarthy has a capacity for doing that because, you know, he also in his own way possesses a, an absence of shame and is willing to do whatever it takes to maintain power. He's no idea of a fearless leader. But I will say for McCarthy that, that he's he's a good infighter. And um, he knows the inside game much better than, say, a Marjorie Taylor Greene does. So, you know, Greene may be able to use the MAGA constituency to try and roll McCarthy. But, I mean, in terms of McCarthy's Machiavellian cunning, uh, he already, in a sense, has won the speakership if, if indeed they regain the majority because Green and other members of the House Freedom Caucus don't have anyone to put up against him. I mean, it's either him or, or, or Nancy Pelosi again. You also zero in on the intellectual bankruptcy around McCarthy and, and, the, and the, the chapter 
that describes the ouster of Liz Cheney is fascinating. I mean, at first, uh, Kevin McCarthy, I mean, Kevin McCarthy, you know, did a lot of flip-flopping around in the beginning of uh, 2021, uh, breaking with Trump and then running down to Mar-a-Lago, initially embracing Liz Cheney and then cutting her loose. So tell me what happened there. How did that relationship go sour so fast? Yeah, I mean, it's well, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that McCarthy and Cheney have never been each other's type mm-hmm. and that McCarthy always viewed Liz Cheney warily as someone who it's easy to forget this as recently as a couple of years ago was, you know, one of the absolute ascendant Republicans, probably the most formidable um, woman in Republican politics, and someone for whom the sky seemed the limit, Speaker of the House, Governor, President of the United States, Vice President, any of these seemed possible, and McCarthy was well aware of that. In fact, I, I mentioned in the book that when McCarthy happened to be at some speaking event in, I think, Chicago, and, and to, to questions from the audience, and somebody asked about, you know, were there any other like Republican stars that, that McCarthy could think of and, and where he saw them going. He said, yeah, Liz Cheney should be a great secretary of defense. And, and it was definitely McCarthy's way of saying, please don't think of her as speaker. Um, but he, he still saw it as best for his coalition, the McCarthy coalition, to placate the establishment Republicans of whom uh, uh, Liz Cheney was a part and the MAGA Republicans of whom Marjorie Taylor Greene was. But when push came to shove and so many conservatives bridled at how Cheney not only voted to impeach Trump from her position as conference chair and then made the announcement that she would do so again in her capacity as conference chair, but continued to denounce Trump and continued to say he had no uh, place in their party, that was an affront to so many Republicans um, that she ultimately lost yeah. a lot of her, um, you know, a, a lot of her standing within the conference. And McCarthy could see that. And it was just stepping on McCarthy's message. Um, it was a constant distraction. He also felt in the February 3rd, 2021 special conference that was held to discuss whether or not to keep Cheney on as Republican conference chair, that he had saved her bacon that day, that he had given this speech that saved the day. There is, by the way, no evidence that he flipped more than maybe one vote um, that day, uh, but uh, but that's what McCarthy felt like, and he felt like Liz Cheney never never showed gratitude, never was thankful, and instead was just a pain in the ass. And and uh, meanwhile, Cheney was disgusted by McCarthy going to Mar-a-Lago in late January to kiss the ring of Donald Trump. She thought that that was the moment at which the the party could have divested itself of Trump once and for all, and here's McCarthy doing the opposite. So there was no love lost by the time that she was finally pushed out, and now the two truly cannot disguise their loathing of each other. So let's talk about the Democrats. You know, you describe the somewhat feckless uh, attempts by Democrats uh, to push back against all of this madness. I guess because it is so much madness, because you do feel like you're taking crazy pills, have the Democrats figured out how to deal with this new reality? I mean, it sometimes it feels like they're playing completely different games, completely different universes. Right, right. I mean, it starts with, you know, um, uh, one manner in which with which I sympathize with Democrats is that, you know, they like Republicans uh, and like myself were inside the Capitol. Their lives were at risk that day on January the 6th. And that was in and of itself a traumatizing moment. It's it's easy to be re-traumatized 
uh, not only when you go back to work in the same place where all that occurred, but also then go to work amongst Republicans who are in a state of denial about what occurred or a state of revisionism about what had occurred. And, and then you top that off with the fact that there are some Republicans who carry this kind of violent swagger to them, talking about carrying firearms into the Capitol, using violent rhetoric. And, and, uh, and, and the Democrats have been uh, they're frankly afraid, a lot of them are, of, of the Republicans, on top of which there are a lot of Democrats who just won't do business with Republicans anymore, or at least the Republicans who say that 2020 was stolen. They think that's a, you know, a, a corrosive lie to continue to promulgate and that disqualifies Republicans who do push that lie um, from being the kind of people that they want to do business with. So there's all of that. But I also think that, you know, the Democrats are look, they're the party in power. So they have to answer for all of what's taking place in America today, including inflation and, and other problems in the economy, not to mention Biden's low approval ratings. And I think they have struggled to reckon with all of that while at the same time, you know, talking about the Republicans as a threat to democracy. And I and I don't, you know, I think they've been frustrated that uh, the average American is really, really concerned about economic issues and tends to view uh, these first midterms in, into a president's term as a referendum on the party in power. Uh, and, and yeah, I think they 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 clearly struggle. And of course, we have the older story of all of the Republicans are rationalized why they can't push back against this because mm. you know, a, you know, yeah, they may be weapons of mass delusion, but the voters support those weapons. And so you talk to many of them, these uh, uh, the famous anonymous Republicans who say yeah. that uh, I can't denounce them because then I'll get primaried. I'll, you know, uh, it'll, you know, I'll go the way of Liz Cheney. So right. and, and if I did, I'd be replaced by somebody much worse like Matt Gates. And right. so you'll be thanking me someday, Robert. Yeah, I can't tell you how many. Times, I mean, you've probably heard this a lot too, Charlie. Right? I mean, it's you know, I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I did. I'd, I'd be retiring this year, and and um, and uh, uh, you know, and there's a certain, you know, I, I can sympathize to a certain extent with that viewpoint, and particularly when it comes from someone like um, Peter Meyer, the freshman from Michigan, who he didn't sign on to spending all his time trying to lecture fellow Republicans while trying to convince his constituents that the election was fair and not stolen. You know, that's not why he wanted to come to Washington. And so he was desperate to turn the page on all of this stuff. But the facts on the ground just made it very difficult to do that. And and I, you know, the, I guess where I've had difficulty understanding these Republicans who, who sort of mainstream Republicans who go to ground when the crazy talk, you know, ensues, um, because they don't want to defy the crazy talk and risk getting primaried and defeated, is that so? How, in your view, then, sane Republican, does the crazy go away? Yeah, does it just really just you know does it just dwindle of its own accord? Um, I mean, that's in theory that seems plausible, but for the fact that you've got tens of millions of people who believe all of these lies that I recited earlier, principally among them that the election was stolen. And we now know the playbook that, that if Republicans lose this or that election, they're almost certain to challenge, you know, its fairness and, and to allege theft. And and they'll have constituents who believe it. So washing out of the system this kind of disinformation requires a, you know, sort of, I mean, it may require mass deprogramming, but in any event, the, you know, the, the enabling in the meantime 
of it by simply just not talking about it or worse still by saying, well, yeah, you know, people are concerned about our elections. You know, there's a lot of people think something bad happened. And so I do. Yeah, sure. Audits. Why not? You know, is um, uh, isn't helping things. Yeah. So, I mean, that does get to the question. How, how does this end? Is you you were on PBS the other day and said, you know, are, are millions of people suddenly going to wake up and stop believing the conspiracies? You know, is yeah. is just people become exhausted. I don't know how it ends, but I, I think you know. Again, one of the major takeaways I have from from your book is, as you point out, the Republican Party doesn't need Trump anymore. You know, we're all focused on Donald Trump. What happens if Donald Trump doesn't run, or he's indicted, or eats too many Big Macs, or whatever? Because he showed them a blueprint that they're going to run with it. That you don't have to get people who don't like you to vote for you, right? Uh, it's right, easier exactly. to get people who like you to love you and then demonize right. the other side. Yeah, and right. then if you actually don't win an election, you just claim that it was stolen. I mean, it's a whole right. new ethos. And you're seeing talented, younger Republicans running with it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and uh, and, and you're exactly right, Charlie, that the, that does not require any longer the assistance of Trump since he showed them the way. And and um, and and as as I mentioned before, um, we may very well be seeing Carrie Lake follow that path all the way to if she if she loses to down this rabbit hole of unfounded claims of election theft. I was there on her primary night when ballots were coming in late and there were some problems in one county yeah. with, with with counting the ballots. And she immediately started saying, what in the hell is going on? And strongly alleging, you know, or strongly implying that that's, you know, something malevolent was taking place here when it was nothing of the kind. And, and so that's one thing to be concerned about. But of course, the other thing to be concerned about is that when you are not only just lying about the election and you are whipping up your base, but you're also whipping them up by demonizing the other side, not simply saying they're wrong or wrongheaded or immoral, um, but that they are godless, that they are unpatriotic, that they are evil, that they are human scum, you know, de- uh, describing them in otherized terms, then you really do you know, run the risk of convincing your constituents that they are in the midst of a holy war. And, and this is a holy war that at the moment is just has rhetoric as weapons. It's not pleasant to have people call you and issue death threats and all that, but those are those are rhetorical, you know. Mostly. Um, uh, yeah, mostly. That's right. But but we've certainly seen instances, January 6th being at present the apotheosis of these, of where it, you know, actual physical violence broke out. And I really do fear that the continued use of this kind of rhetoric in the furtherance of objectives as lame as, you know, ratcheting up their online donations or their social media um, uh, influence could really lead to violent outcomes. Yeah, I mean, that that's the problem. You know, when you, you weaponize what you call the politics of hysteria, you have no sense of shame, you're weaponizing hysteria, and there are sometimes violent results. We shouldn't be surprised by all of that. So, and I, I know you probably get tired of this, but where does this end? What What is the boiling point? Because it strikes me that in this particular universe, you have to keep turning the temperature up. If it is a yeah. politics of hysteria and outrage, you must always be outraged. You must always be hysterical. You never can allow people to go, okay, well, that was good enough. Now let's move on. Let's pause. Let's be reasonable. Let's be prudent. It always has to be increasing, right? So as yeah. bad as it was before January 6th, it's worse now. As bad as it is now, is it going to be worse six months from now? 
Yeah, I mean, as you describe it, Charlie, it, it does sound like a flame so, you know, so crazed that it might burn out that, you know, kind yeah. of like the the rats in the proverbial experiment who keep hitting, you know, the button that then gives them doses of cocaine that ultimately they'll keel over and die. Mm-hmm. I hope that's not what happens to America. But 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 it's but I'm also not convinced that this just stops of its own accord, particularly when there's now a whole cottage industry that supports, that incentivizes um, this kind of crazy, shrill and quasi-apocalyptic talk. The only thing you know that, that comes to mind as to how this ends for the Republican Party is if these forces um, take power and do a miserable job of it to the extent that the public is revolted by it and finally turns the reins back over to the more sensible Republicans who say, okay, uh, uh, MAGA Republicans who've taken leave of their senses. We've done it your way, and now we're all but finished as a party. We have sustained a succession of election cycle losses, and uh, now we're going to do it our way. But, I mean, it would require the broader support of the electorate, and I think that that comes only after failure. Uh, that's the only thing that I can think of. I'm, I'm just saying that as an observation. I'm not saying it as a prescription or as a judgment, It's uh, but but at least as I contemplate the possibilities as to how we get out of this. Uh, Adam Kinzinger was the one who, you know, first mentioned this to me. He said, I just think we're going to need to lose a lot. And once we lose a lot, then, uh, then, you know, the Republicans as a party will say, well, we're about to cease to exist as a party unless we try something else, which requires coming to our senses. The problem is, of course, that losing a lot would have to take place over maybe three, four election cycles. So we're going to have to strap in. This isn't going away anytime soon. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, the, you know, the, the first election cycle, we already know what will happen. Right. Well, it was stolen, you know, yeah. well, it was stolen. And maybe they prevailed then and we have a constitutional crisis, but but they still prevail. And uh, and then maybe they lose again and lie again and uh, again, govern incompetently. You know, that's uh, so you know, the, there is the possibility, and I know that this is what Republicans have done in some, you know, in the cases of Georgia with, with uh, Governor Kemp, mm-hmm. and I think Governor Ducey has tried to do this in, in uh, Arizona as well, to promote these um, so-called election reforms as a means of reinstilling confidence in the election system. And um, many of these supposed reforms address problems that didn't exist at all, um, uh, but at least will lend the appearance of, um, uh, of restore, quote unquote, restoring election integrity. I think that, that, you know, thus far I've seen very little evidence that Republicans are buying it. They're still, you know, we, we know now our reports in Arizona of, you know, people, you know, these vigilantes, yeah. you know, watching the drop boxes and, and you know, wearing Kevlar. And, and uh, so I, I, I don't, I, that's been, you know, one effort, but I'm not sure that that's what's going to turn the trick. The book is Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. It is an incredible, riveting, urgent, immediate read. Robert Draper, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me on, Charlie. Appreciate it. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.